Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 10. You can follow along with me in the Bible you brought with you. You can also follow along. There's a pew Bible in front of you. It's also been provided for you in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along with me, we would welcome you to do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It is so great to have you with us uh, because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be down at the Tennessee Theater enjoying Cats, uh, the musical, uh, not the animals, uh, although in the musical they are the animals. But anyway, Cats is at the Tennessee Theater. You could be out on the golf course uh, living your PGA dreams, or you could be at home blowing your nose and sneezing and scratching your eyes out as you battle the allergies that are so common this time of year. Uh, But you're not doing any of those things. You're here, and I do want to thank you uh, for coming. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than worship Jesus Consider his claims upon your life. Think about the power and the kindness of his salvation. And then to consider his claims upon your life. And so I do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in that love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. We love to spend time with one another. We, go, we love to go to the musicals together. We love to watch football together, like Orange White Game yesterday. But what we really love to do is gather together and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and as we then remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together... We might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University in Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. We're a people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that uh, during this uh, Eastertide season, we have begun a new uh, series entitled Reflect, uh, Resurrection Life, Reflections on First Thessalonians. And the reason I want to do this is I think it's really fascinating that if you read through the book of First Thessalonians, you'll notice that in every chapter... Paul mentions the resurrection of Jesus. And in doing this, what he is saying to us is that the resurrection of Christ is supposed to shape the entirety of, God's, uh, of your life. 
and the entirety of God's people. And so last week we talked about the resurrection, right? This week, what I want us to consider is the resurrection work of God. Next week, we'll talk about the resurrection ministry of God. Then we'll talk about the resurrection word of God, the resurrection comfort of God, the resurrection sanctification of God, the resurrection hope of God, and then finally, the resurrection community of God. Uh, But this morning, we want to think about the resurrection work of God. So with that in mind, uh, not to bore you any longer, we'll look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 and bore you a little bit longer, maybe, uh, once I start talking more. But let's now turn our attention to God's word. Now, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, uh, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for ye received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, we are uh, thankful uh, for this, your word, that you're a God not hidden, nor are you silent, but you are one who delights to reveal yourself to us. And you have done that uh, in your word uh, and by your Holy Spirit. And ultimately you've done it in the person and work of Jesus. And so it's our prayer now that as uh, we attend unto this, your word, that you and your kindness and your mercy would attend unto us, that we would see lovely and beautiful things in this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, through the magic powers of the internet, uh, my friend Matt Howell sent me this amazing video about a whale a couple weeks ago. And so on November 9th, 1970, uh, in Florence, Oregon, a dead whale washed up on the shore. It was massive. It was 45 feet long. It was eight tons. And for three days, this dead whale uh, just sort of baked in the sun on the sands of Oregon, rotting, festering, emanating unthinkable foul smells that we shouldn't talk about any longer. And so someone said, we've got to get rid of this thing. So as uh, would do, they called the Oregon State Highway Patrol to come and figure out how to get rid of this thing. It's too big to bury. Uh, It was too putrid for anyone to climb up on it and cut it up. There weren't enough, uh, uh, you know, pickup trucks, F-150s to sort of haul it off and get rid of it. 
And so someone had to make a decision, and you could imagine how this decision uh, probably got made. It was probably a group of men sitting around a table, and somebody says, hey, no idea is a bad idea. You know, we're just spitballing here. What do you got? What do you got? And someone raises their hand. Here's, here it is. Here it is. Here's what we do. I don't know. Why don't we, let's say, I don't know, maybe put 20 cases, maybe a half ton of dynamite under the whale, and then we can blow it up, and then uh, the seagulls and the scavenger crabs can sort of take care of the rest. It'll be natural. It's the way we should do it. And somebody's like, yes, 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 that's what we'll do. Let's do that. So the day comes, they put the dynamite up underneath the whale, the families pack the picnic baskets, they get the kids ready to go watch what happens. Men start asking women out on dates, the whole county sort of shows up to watch this explosion because like, what could go wrong? Uh, the countdown begins, right? Uh, five, say it with me, four, three, two, one, and there's this explosion. Like a nuclear bomb, a mushroom has been detonated, a mushroom cloud of fire and smoke and sand, and everyone on the, on the you know, dunes, they're cheering, they're laughing, it's amazing. And then they look up into the sky and everything goes slow motion. Oh no, <laughs> like what have we done? And then everyone starts running for cover because giant chunks of whale are beginning to rain down on everyone. And it's so much so that there's this car that's parked a quarter mile away that has been crushed by a giant piece of whale the size of a refrigerator. And everyone is now covered in whale bits and the town is coated in blubber and guts. And then the seagulls that were supposed to get rid of all of this stuff are nowhere to be found because they've been scared off, right? And, uh, and so what I want you to see is that their expectations about this event were quite literally uh, blown up. Now here's what's happening in 1 Thessalonians. It's a lot like that. Because in 1 Thessalonians, what Paul is telling us is that the resurrection life of Jesus is like an explosion upon this world. And it disrupts, it confronts, and it changes everything about us and everything around us. And so this morning, what I want us to consider is the resurrection work of God in our lives. And as we think about this resurrection work, I want to think about it in two ways. First, I want to think about how the resurrection work of God makes us his own. And then second, how the resurrection work of God then moves us out into mission. All right, the resurrection work of God makes us his own and then it moves us out in mission. So point one will be makes us his own. Point two will be moves us out in mission. We'll begin with point one, makes us his own. All right, so the resurrection work of God makes us his own. You see this in beginning in verse two. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Now, why is it that Paul would then go on to give thanks to God? Well, I want you to notice what he says in verse 3. He says, he gives thanks for their work of faith, for their labor of love, for the hope that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the things that they have done. So why is it then that Paul would give thanks to God for these things? Well, notice what he says in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so what I want you to see here is that Paul is giving thanks because their lives now reflect the fact that God has chosen them to be his people. 
As soon as you, some of you hear me talk about this word chosen, you begin to jump to philosophical and theological de debates. And I get that. Those debates uh, do matter. Uh, and I really am about to do a lot of theology with you. But in order for us to understand election or calling or the P word predestination or uh, this idea, uh, we, we've got to first understand what it means uh, to be chosen. And to be chosen means... That out of God's mere good pleasure, he has chosen to place his love upon his people such that he calls his people out of darkness, out of idolatry, out of spiritual death. And by his resurrection power, he gives us new life. In other words, right, he spiritually resurrects us from the dead so that we might be his and live today, live now with the confidence of his love and the joy of his salvation. You see, to be chosen means that God has made us his own. That God, by his grace, calls us out of all the stories and out of all of the idolatries that enslave us. And by his grace, he then frees us to be his dearly loved children. And for Gentiles like the Thessalonians, and for Gentiles like most of us here uh, at Redeemer in Knoxville, this means that God has called us into his covenant promises. And by calling us into his covenant promises, what that means is that God's story of redemption and reconciliation is now ours. And that all of God's promises are ours. That all of God's work is for his children. That God has now called us to be his children. He has placed his love upon us and that he has called us out of death into his life. So to be chosen means that by God's grace, he brings us into relationship with him or into covenant with him. Now, to understand this, uh, we need to keep going further and think about the story of God. And if you've ever read the Bible, you'll remember that out of all the people on the earth, God, by his grace, called a man, chose a man named Abraham. And he called Abraham to do the very same thing that he calls us to do in verse 9, to turn from idols and serve him. And so what he said to Abraham, he said, Abraham, you must turn away from the gods of your fathers and you must follow me. And he said to Abraham, Abraham, I am your God and you are my people and I will make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to the world. He's saying, I'm your God, you are now my people. And this is the covenant calling. This is what it means to be chosen, that we now belong to God, that we know his love, that we enjoy his love, that we reflect his love to the world. And so Abraham, who had lived among the idols of his fathers and had been defined by those idols and had even served those idols, was chosen to turn from those idols to serve God. And this is what God's calling, this is what God's choosing does. It makes us turn from, right, and turn to. And I think this is important because oftentimes as we think about Christianity, we define Christianity primarily in negative terms. And so we think Christianity is about stopping. 
right? We think Christianity is about stopping uh, uh, smoking, stopping lying, stopping stealing, stopping sexing. But Christianity uh, is not a, a negative religion. Christianity is always about turning from in order to turn towards. It's about turning from our idols and turning to serve God. Turning towards the one who really loves us. Turning towards the one to whom we owe our life. Turning towards the one to whom we owe our allegiance. Turning towards the one in whom we find our identity, our joy, and our life. And so to be chosen means that God, by his grace, has, uh, 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 who, who brought forth Jesus from the dead to live again, is the same God who now calls us out of death into life, turning from idols to him. You might say, well, of course, Abraham had idols. He was part of an ancient superstitious culture. And we are not like that anymore. We're sophisticated. We're secular, modern, enlightened people. And of course, that's true. Uh, but uh, though the names of our gods, of our secular gods, may no longer be named Marduk or Baal or Asherah, we still have idols that we continually bow down to and that uh, continue to define us. Uh, the children here at Redeemer, they're studying the New City Catechism. And in the New City Catechism, there's a question. Uh, question uh, 19 asks this, what is idolatry? What is idolatry? And the answer is this, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. I'm going to say it again. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. And so the question before us is this, what is it that you think will make you happy? What is it that you think will make you significant? What is it that you think will make you safe? Your answer to those questions are your idols. Now, you might not think about them as gods, but they do control your lives because they're the things that we all pursue. Because here's the reality. There's a deep angst in each and every one of our lives. And we don't like the angst. And we want to get rid of the angst. There is, dear, there is a deep fear in each and every one of us. And we want to be safe. There's a deep insecurity in each and every one of us, and we want to be valuable, right? Uh, there's a deep sense of not being loved in each of us, and we want to be loved. And so where do you look to find these things and to get these things and to secure these things? And so as you think about your life and as you think about your angst, do you think, well, I'm uncomfortable in the world, so I must be in the wrong body? Or do you think, like, I need to be safe. I don't feel safe in the world, so I need guns. Or do you think, I don't feel valuable in this world, so I need money. Or I don't feel loved in this world, so I need sex. You see, idolatry isn't merely the different temples that we go and visit. It's the temples that we visit in order to secure the life that we desire. Our idols are actually the solutions to the angst that is deep within all of us. 
right? It's, a, it's our attempt to solve that angst apart from God. And so when God then calls us, when God elects us, when God chooses us, he then by his grace comes to us and he says, look, uh, some, of your, some of your questions are bad questions. <laughs> Sometimes he comes to us and he says, look, I am the answer actually to your questions. I'm actually the solution to your problems. I'm the comfort to your fears. You see, God comes to us to give us his life. He comes to call us out of death to himself. And this is why then God's people are categorized, verse 3, by faith, hope, and love. Because God gives himself to his people. And therefore, Paul gives thanks to God because God was kind enough to choose to reveal these things to us. And not just to reveal ideas to us, but more importantly, to reveal himself to us, to give himself to us, to identify with us and place his name upon us. Now, why would God do this? Well, you'll notice in verse 1, it says, grace to you. And what I want you to see here is that Christianity is all grace. That Christianity is a divine gift. Now, why? Again, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And what I want you to see here is that he chooses you because he loves you. He doesn't choose you because you're so filled up with faith, hope, and love. He doesn't choose you because you sang in the band. He doesn't choose you because you lead a Bible study. He doesn't love you because you're the right sorts of people who do the right sorts of things, who live in the right sorts of neighborhoods, who have been educated at the right sorts of schools. Right? The story of God and the way of God is that God, by his grace, chooses us because he loves us. That is who he is and how he has always worked. Think back to the beginning, to Abraham. He called Abraham out of his paganism. If you think about all the nations on the earth, he chose Israel. He chose Israel in her weakness and out of her slavery. He chose the disciples, it says in Mark, because he wanted to be with them. I want you to think about the famous passage back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 as Israel uh, was about to enter into the promised land. You remember what he said to them before they went in. He said, I want you to remember who you are. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh of the king of Egypt. And so what God or what Moses is saying to the people before they enter the land, he's saying, I want you to remember who you are. Because as soon as you get into the land, and as soon as you have everything you want, and as soon as you're strong, and as soon as you're a big nation, right, you're going to forget me. And you're going to think that I loved you and that you got this land because you were strong and because you were smart and because you were righteous. But it was never about that. It has always been because I love you. It has always been because I love you and I've placed my love upon you and I've worked to save you. And what I want you to see here is that it's God's love, right, that gives us 
life. And that's the point of verse 1, that the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that the people of God, the beloved of God, the church of God, is united to God. That God in his mercy and God in his love unites us to himself. Now, what would it mean for us to be united to God? Well, theologians call this a vital union, meaning that because God loves us, he unites himself to us in such a way that his life begins to fill our life, that he fills us with his life. And as he fills us with his love, that love then overflows through us, right? out to the world. So if you think about this idea of turning from idols to God, and you think about this idea of being united to God, uh, what this means is that by God's grace, he then uproots us out of the soil of our idolatry. By his grace, he digs us up out of the soil of our false gods and our false hopes and our false solutions. And he then transplants us in the soil of himself in the soil of his life, in the soil of his love. And now it is he who nourishes us. It is he who gives us life so that his life might then fill us and then flow through us because we are his, right? That's point one. The resurrection work of God makes us his. But as he makes us his, he then uh, moves us out. He moves us out in mission. And the order of this is really important because God first gives us life, right? Therefore, we live. God gives us love, right? He loves us, therefore, we love. God gives us joy, therefore, we rejoice. God gives us hope, therefore, we hope. God makes us his, therefore, we're his. And this is what John had in mind, right? When he said, uh, we love because he first loved us. And what I want you to see here is that the reason why God's people move out in mission is not to get God to love us. And we don't move out in mission in order uh, for uh, God to accept us as his own. God's people actually move out in mission because God loves us and he's been good to us. And we can't help but talk about it. We can't help but tell others about it. And that's what was happening with the Thessalonians. That's what they were doing. And this is why uh, Paul gives thanks. He thanks God because as he looks at the church, as he looks at the people of God, as he looks at the Thessalonians, he sees the life of God, he sees the love of God, and he sees the work of God manifest in their lives. I want you to look at what he says in verse 6. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. I want you to notice what he says in verse 7. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And what I want you to see here is that God, by his grace, has transformed their lives by filling them with his love and with his joy so much that his love and his joy begin to spill out of them. In the fourth century, there was this big discussion between a group of people called the Pelagians and this guy named Augustine. You might know him as Saint, his first name, Augustine. And uh, Augustine addressed uh, the idea of how is it that people change? He addressed the idea of transformation. 
And Augustine wrote this. He said, human beings receive the Holy Spirit so that there arises in their minds a delight in and a love for that highest and immutable good that is God. Even now, while they walk by faith, not yet by sight. By this love given to them, like the pledge of a gratuitous gift, they are set afire with the desire to cling to the Creator. All right, the Cambridge theologian Simeon Zoll commented on Augustine here, and he said this. He said, the key word here is delight. In Latin, delect, uh, delectatio. Uh, the way you change a person is by getting through not to their head or their will, but to their heart, which is precisely the work of the Holy Spirit to fill us with new desires for the things of God and to make us hate and flee from our bad self-destructive desires. And so what I want you to see here, what uh, Simeon is saying and what Augustine is saying is that God is the one who by his grace and his mercy gives us life, gives us new desires, gives us new loves, and out of those loves, we now live. And therefore, because God loves us, we live and we love not to get loved, but we actually live in love because we are loved. And so now as God's people, we move out in the world speaking of the one we love, participating in the things that the one we love loves. And that was, that's what's happening uh, in the world of Thessaloniki. The people of God there in Thessaloniki had been converted. Uh, they had been changed by God's grace. They had been changed by his word. And that word that was dwelling within them was now powerful among them, as the text says. And it began to shape them. So much so it shaped the way they talked, what they thought about, what they loved, how they lived. And as they changed and as they lived, then everyone around them started to talk about this. And then they were not only the ones who were changed, but then you notice that more and more people hear about this God that they are serving and they begin to experience his love and they were changed and they then began to love God as well. And what we see is that the more they began to cultivate this love for God, right, the more they began to move out in loving him and in loving their neighbor. And then this little community of Christians became this glorious reflection of God's love that was spilling out and began to fill the earth. Now, why did they do this? Well, they did this because it was their joy and their delight. He was their hope. He was the one in whom they believed and trusted. And as they delighted in God, it began to spill out to the world. And this is why every week here at Redeemer, we say Redeemer is a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we do what? As we rest in his love for us. And as we remind each other of his love for us, then we begin to reflect that love out to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville. And hopefully in some way, it would spill out into the entire earth. And that, that's what was happening uh, in Thessaloniki. The more they delighted in God and his love for them, the more they began to reflect it. And then the more it began to spill out into the entire earth as well. And I want you to notice verse 1, Paul wrote, to the church of the Thessalon Thessalon Thessalonians. 
need to go back to my therapy. Uh, uh, but I want you to notice that what we see here is that God calls a church to exist in a place. And he calls that church to exist in a place for that place. And we are Redeemer Church of Knoxville. And that means that God has placed us here to serve him and to serve our neighbors here on this little corner, 17th and Highland, out into Urban University, Knoxville, and hopefully from here, who then spill out to the ends of the earth. And the reason I'm saying this and, uh, is I think it's important, one, it's in the text, and two, uh, there have been a few, uh, it's been brought to my attention, there have been a few complaints that Redeemer doesn't care about missions. Uh, it's just not true. Uh, we 100% care about missions. We just believe that missions isn't just something over there that special Christians do. And, and we just believe that missions isn't something that certain people just go and do over there to people that are different than them or less fortunate than them. And we just believe that missions isn't just something that you do in your spare time or after work or as a vacation. It's not just something that we then pay other people to go do. We actually believe that God's people, all of God's people, are placed in mission wherever, whenever, all the time they're going. And we believe that we are God's people, called and chosen by him, so that we might reflect him where he has placed us. And where has he placed us? He has replaced us right here on 17th and Highland to reflect him to Urban University Knoxville. And our hope is that in some way, as we love and serve him, that will spill out to the entire earth. What I want you to see is that our conviction is that we are God's chosen people to reflect him wherever he has us wherever he has us, in our neighborhoods, at the Y, at the university, at your job, at the club, uh, in your families, wherever, whenever you go, you go as his, overflowing with his love. That is our mission. And it is our hope that as we do that, it will spill out and that people will begin to hear about God's work among us, just like they heard about God's work among the Thessalonians. That somehow people all over Knoxville would hear, uh, all over Tennessee would hear, all over the world might hear that we are turning from our idols and we are beginning to serve God. And we are beginning to walk after his ways. And our hope is that people would begin to hear of this. And they would want to know who is this God that has loved them? Who is this God that they serve? Who is this God that has filled them with this love? That it might begin to spread out to the entire earth. Now we also believe that some of you will be called by God's grace to leave, and I'll name you by name, uh, I'm just kidding, uh, that's a joke, you should all come, uh, except, anyway, but we actually believe, uh, let's just move on, we do believe that, uh, that some of you will be called by God to leave Urban in University Knoxville and uh, maybe be a pastor, uh, maybe be a missionary, maybe be a church planter. Uh, many of you are about to graduate you're gonna be called away to another city. Others of you are gonna receive a new call for a new job, and you're gonna leave. And we're gonna celebrate that, not because we want you to leave. 
We're going to celebrate that because God has chosen you and called you to send you to another place that you might be a new reflection in a new place to tell others about this God that you serve. Because we believe that God, by his grace, has chosen us to be his people, serving him wherever he's placed us. And for most of us in this room this morning, he has placed us here on this little corner, and we begin to serve here, and hopefully it will spill out to the entire earth. And so we give ourselves to that mission. That's the mission we give ourselves to. And we give ourselves to this mission, and we will continue to do so until Jesus comes again. Because we really believe that Jesus will come again. And this too is why Paul gives thanks to God. He says in verse 3 that they had a steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was this hope that they had in Jesus, right, that then verse 10 helped them to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. And so what I want you to see here is that as Christians, we actually believe that the story of God is not over. We believe that the point of being a Christian is that, uh, is that we are waiting for him to come back. And we are trusting that he will come back as the great king, reconciling all things to himself. And we will see that not just in faith, but we will actually see it in sight. And so the point of being a Christian is not that once we believe in Jesus, then life is going to become easy and comfortable if we just do the right things. We actually believe that Jesus uh, lived, that he died, that he defeated death, was raised, and he will come again. And his coming again is actually the final solution to all of our problems and all of our struggles and all of our suffering. The answer to our afflictions is not some new Christian technique. The answer to our afflictions is not five principles to a better life. What we believe is that Jesus will come again. And when he does, he will not merely praise the Lord. He will deliver us from the wrath that is to come. But he will also remove all the suffering and all the affliction of this world, and he will dry our tears. And this is really important. It's not just that we won't have tears. It's that he will dry our tears. Because God will dwell with us. And God will heal us. And God will comfort us. And he will reconcile all things to himself. And so, uh, we face, verse 6, affliction. Right? We endure suffering. We serve our neighbors. We bear witness to Jesus. We seek justice. We care for the creation. We're generous. We offer forgiveness. We commit ourselves to mercy. We pray for and we love our enemies. And we do it with hope. And we do it with hope because uh, often it feels foolish to do it. And often it feels pointless to do it. But we do it because we love Jesus. And we do it because we wait for him to come back. And we do it because, as N.T. Wright says, uh, what, you, uh, what you do in the Lord is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up. You are strange, though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world 
Every act of love, every act of gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human being, or for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church and breaks and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. And it is for this that we've been chosen. We've been chosen to be his. And we've been sent out for that great day. We've been chosen, made to be his. And then moved out in his mission. And that's the point of the table as we're about to come to it. Because as we come to the table, what we see is we see the Lord Jesus, the one who lived and died and rose and will come again. And at the table, we see Jesus, the one who gave himself for us so that we might be his own. It's at this table that we see the way of sacrifice is the way of life for he's the one who gave his body for our body. He's the one who gave his blood for our blood. He forgives our sins. He reveals the love of the father through his sacrifice. And now what does he do by his kindness? But he feeds us and he feeds us with himself to strengthen us that we might walk in his ways as his people. And so he invites us to come. <laughs>